episode 209 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. The Ground School app contains knowledge and skill videos. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. My name is Michael Schneider. I'm the founder, executive director, and chief pilot for Pilots to the Rescue, uh, aka Top Dog. And we uh, transport animals that are at risk, mainly at risk of being euthanized. Aviation, welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode is one that I was very, very excited about. It is Michael with Pilots to the Rescue, and they rescue puppies. I mean, does it get any better than aviation and puppies? Uh, what Michael's doing, what his organization is doing, it is incredible, and I, I would love to get involved with it somehow. Makes you want to buy a, a six-seat airplane or a caravan. I mean, obviously I can't, but it would be so cool to have one of those and go help out and go save the puppies. We talk about everything from his journey to becoming a pilot to the struggles he's had entrepreneurially and how he built this company and how he has just seen so much gratification. And it's not even about the money. It's about the successful mission and and saving these dogs and and doing such a great need in in this industry and and what is needed. Uh, Aviation, I hope you really enjoy this episode. If you do, check us out. Pilot the Pilot. Pilot's Coffee, like I said in the last one, whole beans are here. Uh, unbelievable coffee. Try it, share it, gift it. It's great coffee, and I can't wait to hear what you think. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So without any further ado, here's Michael with Pilots to the Rescue. Michael, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, my dog is right next to me, so he is very eager to hear your story and how you are saving his kind, and he is eternally grateful for what you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. And my dog's here as well. She's a 100-pound shepherd mix uh, rescued from Tennessee. We have a 50-ish pound Australian shepherd named Kemba after my favorite basketball player for the Charlotte Hornets. Tip for everyone, do not name your dog after a professional athlete that might get traded to another team because then it doesn't work out so well. But <laughs> the name fits really well, so uh, we're happy with it. Well, thank you for adopting Kenda. Yeah, right? All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, we'll talk about what you're doing, uh, saving the puppies, as I like to say. But uh, let's talk about you a little bit. Why did you get in aviation? Yeah. So my my uh, path to aviation started through skydiving. Uh, I was living in Cincinnati at the time, and a girl I was dating asked if I wanted to go skydiving for my birthday, and I kind of I had to think about it for maybe two or three seconds. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I uh, jumped into what I believe to be a was probably just a 182 with the seats taken out. I really can't remember. Um, this was over 10 years ago, but I had never been in a small plane and uh, never saw a single pilot with the instrumentation. You know, you're sitting on the floor with some dude strapped to your back. And uh, that was a very exhilarating experience in itself because they don't give you headsets. You're feeling all the vibrations of it's, you know, it's loud and you're about to jump out of a plane. So after three jumps, I think it was my jump in Miami. I was thinking about getting my jump license and I asked the pilot, um, you know, 
if you could give me some information about uh, the plane and what's it like to, to fly the plane. And he really encouraged me to take a discovery flight, uh, just saying it's a little bit more practical than skydiving because you can get to point A to B and you can actually take people with you. Skydiving is more of a, a solo sport. Um, so he encouraged me to take a discovery flight. I, I took a discovery flight at Blue Ash Aviation, which is now a park in uh, Cincinnati, and uh, continued on with that flight school um, at Dayton Wright Brothers. And then I realized right on, under my nose, I was living in downtown Cincinnati, 20 minutes away is Sporties. Everybody knows Sporties from the catalog. Uh, they have a great flight school. And uh, I've, I got my PPL from Sporties. I had a 21-year-old instructor, Stephen Dudley. I was his first person that he graduated. I think at the time I was 34. Now I'm 45. So yeah, I've been flying 10 years. I'm commercial instrument rated pilot. And I'm, um, I got that milestone coming up very soon of a thousand hours. I, I, I'm behind in my logbook entries. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I don't even keep track anymore. I'm at the job I want to be at. I don't want to go any farther. So it's like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm done with the yeah. logbook. Unless something happens and I absolutely have to, I'm not touching that thing. Yeah, I get it. So you started at 34. That's when you took your first flight? I believe it was 34. Ish. Okay. Um, yeah, ish. What mm-hmm. were like, kind of, did you ever think about before about being a pilot? Was this completely new to you? Like, did just the idea of skydiving and being around these airplanes kind of get you open to thinking, like, hey, I could do this too? Or was there always a little bit of a thought of, uh, I could be a pilot? Never a thought of being a pilot growing up. I, I can't remember a time where I, it just didn't enter my mind. And I, I, I it, it was the skydiving really that was the opening to it um, and, and the possibility of being at the controls and, and piloting a plane. That's what started it all for me. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if other listeners or other people have heard similar stories of people skydiving and then wanting to fly the plane. I, I have to imagine there's a maybe there's a conversion rate or a statistic there. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, they need to work with flight schools and uh, give a little discount for the people that are crazy enough to jump out. They're like, hey, it's yeah. way more fun if you just stay in the airplane. That's right. Well, debatable on who you are because yeah. you're adrenaline junkies. But uh, so you you get the idea that you can fly. This guy kind of talks you, not talks you into it, but says like, hey, this is pretty cool. Like you can do this. Anyone can do this. Were you surprised how accessible it actually is to become a pilot? Like when, when you first have the idea of becoming a pilot, people always think of the why I can't do this. They don't think about like just to go do this. Were there any doubts? Was there anything kind of holding you back? Like I was terrible at math. I can't do this. I was surprised how accessible it is and how many small airports there are right next to where you live. Um, and, you know, we've all, the pilots come to learn there's, I don't know what the current statistic is, or there's nearly 4,000 airports, but maybe there's only like 1,500 that have the runway lengths long enough for jets. So I always, you know, I didn't realize there's these tiny airports. Some of them are, you know, don't have a control tower or something. You can just walk right on the runway. So that was a very eye-opening to me when I walked down to the local airport and spoke to the the flight school. Um, obstacles always come in the way with this type of stuff, um, and that's you know part of a pilot's journey. You know, it's 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 emotional. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time, uh, but it just makes you such a, a better person when you're able to um, overcome those obstacles. Just like jumping out of the plane, skydiving. That was a huge. Uh, open, you know, eye-opening experience for me, and I, I came off that feeling like I could do anything. Um, and it's the same thing with flying at certain stage checks, you know, like uh, doing your first solo on the pattern, and then doing your cross country, maybe doing uh, your, your night training. There's all these little um, goals, and as you build confidence and and situational awareness, it it 
just makes you better in every aspect of your life. Like Justin, we were talking about how you're a new parent, and I believe that's going to make you an even better pilot. Yeah, anytime you challenge yourself to to do something new, right? Anytime you kind of step out of your comfort zone, it improves you in so many ways, whether it's personally, whether it's with your relationships, whether it's professionally. I mean, uh, learning something new and and adapting it to your life can only help you. I mean, I can't really think of many ways uh, that that would actually hurt you or bring you down. So yeah, anytime you, you challenge yourself to do something, which is way easier said than done because it is so much easier just to not learn something new and watch TV, right? It's true. That's true. Yeah, the procrastination can easily set in whenever you're going for you know another rating or a license or whatnot. So, what was the process like in finding a flight school? There's a lot of people aged in their 30s. They finally say yes, let's do it. Uh, they're they're they find out there's a million flight schools to choose from. Cincinnati has a ton of airports to to go to. You can go to Sporties. Uh, I know there's other airports that have the ability to teach you how to fly. Why did you choose them when you did? Was it the first one you called? They answered and you went, or did you do research? For me, it was location. So I was living in downtown Cincinnati. I didn't know about Sporties originally, um, but everybody at where I was working told me about the little Blue Ash Airport, which, as I said, is now a park. But it was five minutes from where I worked. And I figured that would be a good move because I could either you know, take flight lessons early in the morning before I go to work or after work. Um, and it, it did turn out really well um, until they moved to Dayton Wright Brothers, and that, that was further away. And then, like I said, I finished up at Sporties, which ended up being pretty convenient because I lived downtown. Uh, but at Blue Ash Airport at the time, I think there was only one flight school. Uh, I don't remember them them being any uh, any other, so it was an easy choice for me. I always find it interesting with the mindset that you go into. When you went into this did you think, hey, I'm going to be, um, I mean, a professional pilot or doing this for a living or even what you're doing right now, saving puppies? Did you like go into this with a goal or did you go into this just with a, let's see where this goes? Yeah, I went in thinking, let's see where this goes. I just thought it was a cool thing. I mean, I in, back in 2008, I, I sold a company during uh, you know the housing crisis. I, my hand was kind of forced. That's why I moved to Cincinnati. I'm originally from New York, and that's where I live now in Brooklyn. But um, I had a lot of time and discretionary income because uh, you know Cincinnati is a lower cost of living than New York City, obviously. And uh, I did, you know, I left my friends and family, so I was basically starting over. And uh, I think that actually helped me a lot because those are the type your support network, everybody that depends on you. Um, I, I that kind of went away for me. Um, I, I didn't get pulled in a whole bunch of directions, whether it was friends and family. So um, it just kind of worked out. As far as being like a career pilot or uh, you know being commercial pilot and actually doing this for a living, that I'm a real uh, COVID success story. It was a silver lining for me last year. Um, I have another business that I'm winding down. It's uh, corporate events specific to hospitality design. So if you think about what happened the last two years during COVID with hospitality, hotels, restaurants, whatnot, and in-person events. Those are like the two hardest hit sectors uh, during COVID. So when I saw that happening, I was like, okay, well, I better give this side thing a a shot. Uh, So I kicked myself off the board of directors because generally you don't want to compensate yourself um, when you're on the board. And then I went and got my commercial pilot's license. So I'm making like less than half what I was before, but I'm easily two times happier and more fulfilled. Uh, it, it took me 44 years to figure, figure out what I wanted to do when I grow up, and I have COVID to thank for that. If it wasn't for COVID, do you think you ever would have done this? It was the plans to do this full time when I when my wife retires um, in 10 years. Uh, it wasn't a plan to do it, you know. 
from when we were thinking about it. So, so I never how do thought. You, how do you even come up with this idea? Like, when was this born? Have you always been a dog lover? Has this, uh, has your wife always been a dog lover? And was like, hey, well, you could say puppies. This could be cool. Or was it just something uh, like flying? Like eventually, like someone just talked about it and you're like, wow, that's really cool. I could do that. Sweet. Yeah. So I, I've always had an affinity towards animals growing up. Uh, it was just a thing we did in our family. We went to the local pound and we would pick out a shelter dog or, or a cat. And then I also collect a whole bunch of other animals, whether it be fish, turtles, um, uh, hamsters, mice, hermit crab, you name it. So I just grew up with that, with animals. And I didn't even know you could buy an animal or you have a full breed. It was just always rescue animals. So um, the, the aviation thing, rescuing animals came from doing a, Pilot and Paws mission, which everybody knows Pilot and Paws are the probably the longest, biggest group doing this. And we rescued a group of 10-ditch puppies from North Carolina and brought them to Connecticut. And then being the entrepreneur that I was, I, I wanted to start my own organization. And it was really out of the need to, to uh, fly a larger aircraft. As you know, it's very difficult to rent a six-place aircraft unless you're, there's still some, multi, it's some twins out there, some multis that you can rent. Um, but it's at a higher per hour cost and I would have had to get my multi rating. So um, I've, it was a need to to purchase a larger aircraft. So I wanted to start an organization to raise funds and do that. Um, so we, the first plane we bought was a Piper Lance and now we have a Turbo Saratoga. So how'd you go about even raising funds? Like you come up with this idea. A lot of people have ideas, but you actually had to implement this and had to figure out a way to get an airplane. Uh, what was that process like? Yeah, it was just uh, calling myself out on my BS and saying that, you know, you can do this and setting a goal, unreasonable goal for yourself. Uh, so basically, I, I set a goal within 48 hours. I wanted to raise $10,000 as like startup funds for the website and um, starting the 501c3 and all that stuff. So I just, I leaned on my friends and family and just, I told them I only have 48 hours to raise this money. And they're like, why do you only have 48 hours? And I said, because that's the deadline I'm giving myself. And it's really important when you're trying to achieve something in life that seems huge to give yourself a deadline, make it unreasonable because you will really surprise yourself what you can accomplish if you do that, uh, because we always procrastinate, we make every excuse in the book why we can't do something. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I'm not smart enough. People won't believe in me. And all those doubts will get in your way. They're all roadblocks. So um, that's what I did. And I literally raised, I, I think it ended up being more like 12000 because donations came in afterwards. But I raised $10,000 like in the final minute. <laughs> um so I was dialing for dollars. I was emailing people. I was sharing with them. Sharing is the important part. What it was like to rescue those 10 ditch puppies from North Carolina. Um, and when you authentically share with people, that's when they want to support you. Um, and it, it all worked out. Uh, so we raised the money. We started the charity with the 501c3, the website. And uh, we just kept raising. I would continue to rent aircraft because that was the only access that I had. Um, I was part of a flying club out of Westchester County and then out of Republic. Um, and, you know, did, did as many animals as I could, but those, those aircraft are really small and not as flexible with like taking the seats out and whatnot. Um, but once we raised enough money and I felt comfortable enough to, to get along, we, we purchased the, the Lance. And how long from starting this, uh, to raising 10 grand to purchasing the Lance? Like what was the time frame of all this? It's a really good question. I know uh, we started the organization officially, officially in 2015. I want to say we purchased the Lance maybe like a year or two later. 
um, with a loan. So I didn't raise enough money to buy it all outright, but um, within a year or two. That was a good year to buy the airplane. That was before Lance has turned in or any airplane turned in to be a minimum of like 200 grand. (laughs) Oh, it's crazy right now, Justin. I mean, mean, we could probably sell the plane we have now almost for double what we paid. Yeah, but the problem is you got to buy a plane after that, right? And those are double too. Exactly. And we're going to be in a position to do that. Hopefully uh, next year, um, we're looking to buy a caravan, so... Talk about um, you kind of mentioned like uh, giving yourself a time frame and, and pushing yourself to do something. And it sounds like you're an entrepreneur and you've built companies, you've done a lot. People look up from the outside and see how successful you've been. But I'm guessing there's also been the downs too, where maybe a company didn't go as well as you thought. Has this been a uh, ups and downs for with everything of your entrepreneurial life, or have you been blessed and you're like the Gary Vee and everything you touch turns into magic? No. Yeah. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to accept failure. It's, uh, I'm, you know, countless people say it's what you do after that failure, you pick yourself up, learn from the experiences. But I would consider I've had several successful businesses, but it's a, it's a small success percentage. You know, I've probably have started over 10 companies and out of those 10, only one might've been successful. Uh, so pilots is certainly one of those. Um, and, and there's nothing like starting a charity. It's a totally different, I mean, there are some limitations and drawbacks. Like there's a limit on how much I can compensate myself, for example, but that's okay. The, the fulfillment is off the charts. You know, uh, it's, it's not, it's not so much, uh, it's an, it's an intangible benefit. It's not currency. It's a different type of currency, the fulfillment versus making money. Uh, but yeah, I've had other businesses that have been successful, um, but by far, this one has been the most rewarding and and fulfilling. Um, I, like how you I, said, I like how you said it's okay to fail or you need to fail or you will fail because it's the same thing with aviation. You know, you're going to have a terrible day of flying when you're, when you're building your time or when you're out training and you got to learn from that adversity and you got to become better. So all these things that you learn outside from your life, whether it's sports, whether it's band, whether it's anything competitive or anything at all, you can implement that into your aviation training and you can really become a better pilot by just putting yourself through adversity and figuring out a way to, to make it work when you don't think it could possibly work. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. So, totally. so all that, all the failures help you into what you're creating today. You just can't give up. Got to keep going. Yeah. And they can't teach you everything. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's so many situations I've been in, in, in uh, GA that you learn as you go. And you also learn how you are in a person in, you learn how you are in that stressful moment or that urgent situation, how you react and what you do, what your aeronautical decision-making is like. And, uh, it just, you know, things happen and, um, get better at dealing with them and recognizing them. Uh, so that's, that's a, that's a great, um, teaching moment to yourself, you know, whether I've had a failed alternator, um, you know, I, I have had a, a, a break go out on me, exhaust leaks, you know, all the little things that could go wrong with these GA planes. Um, sure. Sure. It even happens with the Marshall planes too. Oh, yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> more than, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but thank goodness Remiels and good maintenance. Um, talk a little bit about like you starting your training. What was, was it easy for you? Was it something that came naturally to you or was it something you really had to work at? I would not recommend the way I got my pilot's license. It took me like two, two years and a hundred hours. I mean, I have gaps in my logbook of like, I think there was, I almost went like two or three months without flying because you have to learn everything all over again. Um, so 
and learn is there's pros and cons of learning in a, a place like Cincinnati. Uh, the air the airspace is less complex, obviously, than New York. It's not as overwhelming. So I, you know, a lot of my uh, training has been in like little sleepy airports and just a Cessna 172. Um, with exception of my instrument training, I did that down in um, Miami Executive. Um, that was a little bit more complex, but. Um, yeah, so I, I bounced around different instructors, different flight schools, and there's pros and cons of that because every instructor has a different teaching style. They're going to um, have a fresh perspective on the way you're flying and what bad or good habits you have formed. So in that respect, I, th I think those two years and 100 hours, uh, you know, I was pretty far ahead. Um, it just took longer and cost more money with that way. So... You know, there's there's pros and cons of consistency, having the same instructor, same plane, same flight school. And then I also believe that diversity or variety of planes and instructor and flight schools. Overall, I think that did make me a better pilot. Um, just maybe not the best for your pocket. Yeah, I had a similar. So I did my private pilot training up at Ohio State. So I went to Ohio State for college and I played sports there and it really delayed everything. Every time I was ready to take a check ride, I had to go play sports and then I was out for six months. And I came back and I was like, all right, I forgot everything. Let's do this again. So it was very expensive and I probably took my check ride around like 80 hours or 70 hours or maybe more. I don't know, but it definitely extended things. And I like you, I do not recommend that at all. I recommend uh, hopefully finding a, a great flight instructor from the get-go doing some research before the point. Cause if you, the more research you do in the beginning, the better you prepare yourself, the more money you're going to save in the wrong, long run. And that goes for anything you're going to do in aviation, whether it's studying for tests, whether it's studying for flights, whether it's w looking for a flight school, the more prepared you are and the better you do your research, the better prepared you'll be and the less you'll spend. So I highly, highly recommend that. Yeah, agreed. And there's something to be said for using a simple aircraft like a Cessna 172, very forgiving, simple systems. And um, I, I've, I've heard our stories about people getting into very complicated, expensive aircraft to, to get their license and it ends up frustrating them yeah um, i mean if you can afford out. a Cirrus, though like by all means go fly the Cirrus. but yeah more realistically you're going to be in a 152 172 and it's perfectly fine uh you'll be just fine and you will save money and it'll be great what um oh my gosh i just forgot what, okay this is what i'm gonna ask uh when i would take those time off or not purposefully but when after i came back there would always be you know you have the beginner's luck flight where you do really well and then you have like that one flight that frustrates you to no end and you're you really sit in your car when you're done you're like why am i doing this i this is taking forever i'm wasting money did you have any moments like that where you're like this is stupid i'm done oh absolutely absolutely i think on one of my uh cross countries uh requirements uh, i got lost um i had to use the bathroom and uh, I just felt like it was so impractical. And you know how they teach you, obviously they teach you way more stuff that you actually use, you know, there's pilotage and debt reckoning, you know, GPS failures. I understand why they teach it and you got to know it. But this day and age, everybody's using all this fancy equipment with, with backups that will help you when you get lost. But um, so that did frustrate me. I mean, there's a GPS in the plane. They don't want you using it. They want you to, you know, you use your your flight plan and all that stuff. So I did end up getting lost, and I wasn't as familiar using the GPS in the plane, and uh, that that was difficult for me. And um, having to go to the bathroom and holding it, that was fortunate also. So how did you um, get lost? I need to know. Uh, 
don't quite. Re- I think I, oh, I couldn't find the airport. I couldn't find the airport. Yep, flying VFR. I think it was in Lexington, Kentucky, and I just couldn't for the life of me find it. So I just basically turned around and went back. So we sat down. We had another more ground instruction, and he had me do it again which I think was good. And uh, at that time I persevered um, and we went over the GPS a little bit more in case I couldn't figure it out on paper. But, uh, you know, you just got to get back up on the horse. Um, Other things, uh, certainly instrument rating was very difficult. Uh, That was a hard, a lot of people talk about that being one of the hardest ratings. Um, So that was frustrating. I didn't so much give up, but I did sort of an abbreviated program down in uh, South Florida because my dad lived there. Um, I wanted wanted to knock it out. I didn't want to do the two to three days a week over six months or however long people. I wanted to hit it hard and and fly every day for as long as I could. Um, The illusions really scared me with the instrument rating. Like he took me out out over the Everglades at night, uh, which... You know, with the false horizons, and he purposely put me in situations where I would, uh, you know, I, my brain and my eyes didn't know what my body was feeling. Um, and, and even after I had an instrument rating, I've obviously gotten those illusions, but my training served me well in those situations. But um, that was a little scary for me. Um, and, uh, but it made me realize that, you know, that's why we're doing this. Um, so he did that very early on in the training. And I think that was, that was good. Um, and what else can I say? Those are kind of the only moments other than those, some of the urgent situations that I mentioned, like losing an alternator, uh, losing a break. Um, I'm just glad I've recognized the signs of those things. And cause we all study, like, you know, when you lose your alternator, you're only going to have a certain amount of power left and you're going to start losing things and you got to shut things off. Well, you got to actually recognize that you're losing power. So I guess my scan was good enough that I, you know, I saw that the amp meter was basically flat, wasn't moving at all. And uh, luckily we were getting ready to land. Um, but those, those kind of failures do scare me. They pop up, even though we own and operate the aircraft and it's well-maintained, things break on it all the time. Uh, but yeah. stay the course. Yeah. And you're talking about losing an airport. It, it's, it's still hard for me to find airports sometimes. Uh, thank goodness for Garmin Avionics and, and what I have in the airplane because you just do an extended center line and you're like, oh, yeah, we'll just fly to this and then I'll intercept the center line and we'll find it for sure. So uh, Avionics and, and Garmin have, have really helped that because, I mean, there are just some airports, nighttime, daytime, it's impossible to find. Whether the runway just blends in perfectly and you don't see it until you're right on top of it and you're like, oh, crap, but I got to get down. Yeah, or overlapping airports where yeah. you think you're landing, like Essex County, where we fly out of, perfect example. It overlaps uh, Marstown. It's very easy to get them confused the other day coming in for a night landing, and I'm setting up for the runway at Marstown, only to realize that, wait, that's not the right airport. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a bad mistake. Don't do that. And you'd be surprised. 121 commercial pilots do that. I'm pretty sure not too long. I mean, maybe like 10 years ago, maybe not even that long. A Southwest flight pilot landed at the wrong airport. or. Land at the that. wrong airport. So it happens. It still happens. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, did you ever think about, or maybe still do you, or do you have any goals to go to the airlines? I don't. I don't. I, I guess I've created a situation for myself that I can, uh, you know, put food on the table and I'm my, my own boss and I'm doing, you know, transporting animals. It's a lot different than people. Uh, and, and for what I understand, speaking to all, all the the commercial airline pilots, is the type of GA flying that I'm doing is way more fun and satisfying um, rather than 
what could be a, a grind um, and having to kind of fall in line and follow all the, all the rules. So I set my own schedule. Um, I do all everything single pilot um, from loading animals to taking them out to flying the plane, develop, you know, doing content with all the GoPros and stuff like that. I do bring people along with me, which is helpful. I'm going to take advantage of those resources whenever I can, but um, I don't have any interest in flying in the airlines. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you, if you find what you love to do, uh, whether it's being a CFI, whether it's doing what you're doing, or even you just want to be a private pilot, it's like, you don't have to go to the airlines. You can just enjoy aviation. You can make a living in so many other ways. So I think that's really cool. Exactly. Exactly. Is this a, a whole family affair? Do you, does like the whole family run everything or is this just a Michael thing? Uh, right now it's kind of a Michael thing. Um, uh, my wife, my wife and my mother-in-law help me sometimes with stuffing envelopes and marketing material and stuff like that. And then I have a fairly active board, uh, which has a few pilots on, on the board of directors. And, um, I have a great social media team. We've been just killing it on social media and that has really put us on the court. Uh, we're starting to get more brand partnerships, corporate brand sponsorships, which I think that's going to be a great way to build the organization. So my, my five-year plan is to kind of build this more out like Civil Air Patrol, um, mainly because Pilot and Pause is just doing such a terrific job with getting people involved in transporting a few animals, sort of the weekend warrior thing where they you, you can take an animal or two and fly an hour or two away. They're already doing that and they're doing it successfully and they've had a long history of doing it. So I'm not looking to compete with them head to head. I think our niche is uh, having a small fleet of aircraft across the country where we can connect these dots. And we would work with commercial pilots across the country on flying these planes and uh, you know, with similar cabin size, whether it's a PA-32 or, or otherwise. And um, you know, I'd like to use commercial pilots just because they're 99% of the time they're instrument rated and they have more experience. It will help with insurance. And you, you know, those are the type of guys that are coming out to us and saying, we want to get checked out in the plane um, so we can actually fall in love with GA again and, and, and do something rewarding with our certificate. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with flight instruction, but as you probably are aware of, if that's what you're doing day in and day out, you, you probably miss, you, you would love to do one of these type of missions with, with saving animals. So, uh, it's going to take us a little while to get there. I mean, the next plane we're trying to acquire is a caravan and that's expensive. But after that, I'd like to get back to the smaller aircraft and here on the East coast, uh, Putting an aircraft like in Atlanta would be perfect because our typical missions are six to eight hours. Uh, we're flying down to the Carolinas. We're going out to Tennessee, often to meet with uh, rescues from uh, or shelters from Texas. They drive and we meet them there. So we want to extend our range and um, get more pilots involved that way. If someone's listening right now and they're like, hey, I have a Cherokee 6 or I have a caravan and they want to be able to help, how can they reach out to you? What's like the best way to get in contact? Yeah, we have a registration form on our website. It's pilotstotherescue.org. It's all spelled out, pilots, T-O-T-H-E, rescue.org. Um, yeah, I mean, we certainly, I'm on the I'm on the PA-32 board. I'm on the Bonanza boards, and I've posted stuff there. But, you know, they're, they're, some of them want to help out, but they're, I respect that they're, they're aircraft, and maybe they don't want to take the seats out, or they don't want to put so many animals in there, or they don't want to fly six to eight hours round trip as a volunteer paying out of their own pocket, for example. So um, that's been the difficulty. That's why I think uh, you know owning and operating uh, aircraft and, and then the pilots donating their time might, might work out a little bit better. But certainly we welcome it. We, we do welcome it, and we have worked with other pilots in their planes before. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. 
Did you know that you could be investing up to $7,000 per year in a tax-deferred IRA for your spouse if they're not working? This is called a spousal RIA, and many pilots are not aware the strategy is available to help minimize your tax burden while simultaneously increasing your family's nest egg. Founded by pilots for pilots and with four decades of financial planning and investment management experience, RAA is intimately familiar with the unique benefits, risks, and career timelines that pilots face. Whether you're early in your career like me or you spent years flying the line, RAA is here to help you navigate your financial journey from takeoff to touchdown. To see if a spousal IRA is right for you and to learn more helpful investment and money tips, download RAA's free 7 Financial Facts for Pilots guide today at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. What um you, you mentioned that you went from you put a time limit forty eight hours to raise ten thousand dollars. Did you put a time limit on for your <clears throat> excuse me for for the aircraft? I know it took longer and everything, uh, but did you have a set goal in mind, or I guess share a little bit more about continuing to build? Because a lot of times you reach that first goal, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, you 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 kind of reach this like mental high, and, and you're always trying to chase that high, and it might take longer to catch it, and there might be some burnout in there. Did you incorporate? Did you feel that at all, or were you kind of just like mindset to this goal? You're gonna make it happen no matter what. Yeah, I definitely got sidetracked. I mean, I I, I got married. I had four kids, four kids, um, I, or at least before we purchased the lands. I'm sure I had uh, at least one. Um, so you you definitely get sidetracked. I mean, there were there were years where we barely rescued any animals because of uh, you know building my my life and other other things facets of my life that I never did. I mean, I got married at 38 years old and had our first child. At so. Um, I got, I got a little sidetracked, but the goal was to raise enough money to put a down payment on a plane, which I think it was like 20%. So once we raised that money and qualified for the loan, we, uh, you know, went for it. What's been the hardest part of building this, the whole process? The hardest part of building it is, uh, was, or still is, um, you know, a lot of people want to help out and I don't, we probably don't do the best job at, at um, accommodating those people. Like I, they really genuinely want to do something and help out. And I don't necessarily have a lot of things for them to do, especially because we're out of New Jersey, but that will change as I start to build the organization out. And then the other difficulty, any charity will, will say they always need more money. So we're trying to buy a used caravan, you know, budget of like 2 million. So raising that kind of money is, is not easy. There are some very generous people out there uh, who I don't even always speak to that gen- that donate large sums of money. Um, so it's looking under rocks and trying to um, do more donor stewardship, like develop relationships with those donors and uh, get them to to donate money. Um, other challenges are like you know certain expenditures uh, can come off as being extremely high. Like not everybody understands. Uh, general aviation and the costs that are associated with it. And when you are a charity, you, you're basically opening yourselves up to scrutiny. Uh, everything from like people who criticize you for the size of the crate that you're putting in the plane to how much money you're spending on direct mail. Um, and that's one of the things that you need to be prepared for if you start a charity like this. It's You have less control because you're a, you're a public benefit organization. So everything needs to be uh, above board. Um, so there's a lot of regulation. Um, I, I know pilots are used to that with the FAA, but now you're subjecting yourself to IRS regulations as well. Um, so you have to really be 
open and transparent with everything. You can't, it's not like a for-profit business where everything, all the information is private. You can do whatever you want. You know, you can pay yourself whatever you want. Um, so how uncomfortable at first was it to ask people for money? Uh, I mean, not, maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but I just, I would just imagine that I would feel so uncomfortable. I mean, me personally, I feel uncomfortable. When I started the podcast, I didn't want anyone to know I started the podcast because I felt uncomfortable knowing that people knew I was like putting myself out there. And I can't imagine what it felt like the first couple of times you're like calling your friends. You're like, hey, you want to give me 10 grand? Or was it pretty normal? Or is it like, did you just have a great support system? It was like, hey, guys, girls, this is what I need. Uh, it'd be great if you could, if you could help out. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it didn't come, it's not uncomfortable for me because I've been in sales my whole life and I've been an entrepreneur. And part of that is just swallowing your pride and just sharing why this is important to you and asking if they can contribute and support you um, being authentic. Uh, but I, I can understand it's, uh, it could be uncomfortable for some. Um, not everybody is a natural salesperson or feels comfortable doing that. Uh, I, a lot of people just know me as that. Um, and maybe sometimes I could be a little bit aggressive or pushy, but uh, this was something that was really, uh, I was really passionate about. Uh, obviously, I'm passionate about flying and also saving animals. So I just focused on those two things and why, why it's so important for them to be a part of it and seeing this uh, grow. How they want to be involved. And listen, if people don't want to donate money, there are other things that they can do for you. Uh, sometimes it, it's, it's very easy to write a check, actually. It's harder to roll up your sleeves and actually be in action and do something. So uh, if someone, if you're asking for money and they just they don't want to donate, ask them if there's other ways that they might be able to help you. Like, do you know any people that really feel strongly about this cause that I could reach out to to donate in, instead? Like referrals or connecting you. A lot of times it's about who you know. Um, so uh, we're all, what is it, six degrees of separation? You know, it, it's, we all know someone who knows someone. So um, that's the second ask. And that may, that may make you feel a little, or whoever's listening, if they're trying to raise money for something, make you feel a little bit more comfortable. Like come up with various reasons how people can help you. So that's not just you asking for money. You know, you're not just money grabbing. Um, so, and, and don't make it about yourself either. Like this, through the, throughout this whole journey, I tried not to make it about me. Yes, I love flying. Yes, I get to fly a plane that I normally couldn't afford. But a lot of people ask me, how often you fly these planes for pleasure trips? And it's like less than 1%. There is no pleasure trips. <laughs> I'm, I'm only flying it for missions 99.5% of the time, you know? So um, when, you, when you make it, don't make it about yourself, make it about the mission. Have you had any kind of maintenance issues that made you cancel flights or you just had to push them off a couple of weeks? I'd imagine a lot of these can kind of be uh, time sensitive or maybe like this dog's getting ready to be put down unless it gets picked up today. Is that something that happens? Absolutely. Yeah. Just, uh, it's just last week I was coming in from a flight from, I want to say it was uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And I went to go disengage the autopilots at old Bendix King KFC 200 autopilot. And the disengage button just broke. It split right in half. And, you know, the, the trim enunciator started blinking red. I had never seen that before. So, you know, it was VFR. I was coming in the landing. It was nighttime, but uh, the, the autopilot was in, in op. So, I'm comfortable hand flying. I can't say I've had a lot of hand flying experience in that particular plane, but it's just a big hyper uh, warrior archer 
or an arrow, you know, they're all kind of the same. They all handle the same. But in that moment, I was like, well, this could put a damper on my rescuing ability. Like I'm not shooting approaches to minimum hand flying. Uh, everything's going to have to be marginal or better for me to do these missions. And luckily last week, it was all pretty pretty good conditions the whole time. Um, but I flew nearly 20 hours hand flying. Uh, and now the autopilot's working again. So uh, but yeah, I mean, that was something that happened just last week. Stuff happens all the time. Uh, the plane and you just have to be ready for it. And, you know, none of the, yes, it's true. If I cancel a flight, is it possible that these animals could be euthanized? I would say it is possible. But a lot of times uh, these drivers, they're the real heroes in my mind, the people that are driving through the night often to meet me, to to fly them to their final destination. They'll They'll just figure out a way to drive the whole way uh, in case because anything can come up it's not just maintenance it's weather as you know um so uh that that has happened before I, we've also uh when we lost our alternator and um the maintenance shop i think it was on a weekend and they weren't open where we were landing i think it was rocky mount i know we rented a uh vehicle and drove the animals to philadelphia i remember dropping them off at like three in the morning we drove all the way from north carolina so stuff happens to us too. Yeah, adversity, you got to figure out a way and get it done. That leads me to another question of uh, you kind of have like time sensitive of deals going on, trips, missions, and you're very, very passionate about it. I mean, it's clear to hear that. Do you find yourself with like get their itis, putting yourself in a kind of a hairy situation or putting yourself in a situation that maybe you didn't really need to do? Do you, do you find yourself seeing that or are you pretty pretty good at I'd be like, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable doing this. I can just sit here and we can go in a couple hours or we can go tomorrow. Yeah, I haven't had a get get their itis situation that's forced me to like divert or, you know, go miss the land in an alternate or anything like that. Um, so I've been pretty good about that. Uh, and I've canceled due to sickness. Um, I actually, I got COVID uh, not too long ago and had to push all my missions to the following week because of that. I didn't want to put anybody at risk that, that flies with us um, or the people that I came in contact with. So I always err on the side of caution. It, it, it can become frustrating for the partners that we're working with. They may not understand. Um, there's one situation I can think of where um, they wanted us to fly to Syracuse and it, the Syracuse was just the, the weather. They were all socked in. It was, it was ice, it was low IFR and I, They've had planned to have a driver meet us at Essex County or home airport, but it ended up going later than they expected. So they they canceled on their end and they were looking, they were scrambling to find another driver. Um, so I didn't feel comfortable taking the animals on the plane without having that all in place. I mean, we mainly focused on the transportation. We The partners work, work it out amongst themselves, who's dropping the animals off, who's picking them up. But in that moment, I was we had all the animals loaded on the plane. We were near Indianapolis, and it it, it was uh, disheartening to have to take them all out and put them back on the vehicle. I think ultimately that vehicle just ended up driving the whole way. Um, but I really felt bad about the situation. But had I taken those animals in that flight before having any everything worked out on the receiving end, I would have been responsible for figuring out how to house them. And they were asking me questions like, "Can't you just leave them in the hangar?" And it, they would have froze to death, you know? So no, I can't do that. So sometimes you have to learn how to say no. Um, and I think that's what you're getting to with the get their itis. Um, it's even decisions you make on the ground um, that will, your decision-making will, um, ground will, will avoid a situation. Um, 
error when you get to your destination. And that was one that came to mind that was pretty recent. What kind of weather conditions do you find? Are you uh, are you open to shooting approaches out of minimums? Um, I'm obviously icing prize and no go because I'm guessing there's no icing capability or or flight in and no icing. But uh, what what's kind of your uh, your personal minimums or what what would lead you to say no weather wise? Anything marginal is fine. Uh, hard IFR, I'll try not to do that. Um, I've I've certainly shot approaches um, that have you know, save, save my life. Uh, and I'm lucky I've had that training, but if I can avoid it, uh, I certainly will. Um, you know, and if the weather looks dodgy, the, the benefits of having drivers is they'll meet you at a different airport. So you have the ability to get a good weather picture, even that same day. Uh, it happened recently where I was it's supposed to go into Knoxville, Tennessee, and the, that there was a band of, of, um, of icing and, whole bunch of nasty weather. So I just picked something south of it and they met me there. So I do have that flexibility, which is helpful. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes if, if it's, um, and if it's bad weather or low, low ceiling or whatnot, those are great days to go out, actually go out, grab a safety pilot and practice too. Um, I know they recommend that. So I'd much rather do that in my home airport or in when I don't have a whole bunch of animals on board, um, or passengers that are not pilots and, and practice it. I don't want to practice something when I'm trying to do a mission. Um, so to minimums, no, I'll never go and and into an airport with a ceiling that's right at minimums because you're just not giving yourself a, a comfortable safety margin. And I don't have the same equipment on board and that that a lot of commercial airline pilots do. Um, and furthermore, I just talked about a story where my autopilot broke as I was landing, coming in for a landing, you know, I was entering the pattern, I disconnected and it broke. So if I'm shooting approach to minimums, my autopilot breaks because autopilot is, a, is really important, if you're, especially if you're doing single pilot um, and you're shooting approaches because you need to have that situational awareness. You don't want to be hand flying the plane and doing everything else down to minimum. So I think that's a really bad idea. Um, uh, so, I mean, you could practice it, but don't do it on a day where it's known, known to be. Yeah. Talk about the process of setting up a trip. So someone call, like what, what does it look like? I, today you get a phone call from someone and be like, Hey, can you get these dogs? How quick does this happen? Are you like, all right, yeah, we're free today. Let's, let's come and do it. Or is this like a week planned out thing, a month planned out thing? Talk about the whole, like, say you get a phone call today at 9 a.m. What's the process like for a day in the life or how a trip works? We generally um, book book out one week prior. So uh, sometimes it's further out, but it's generally one week prior because there's a lot of variables. And the, the shelters, both on the origin and destination, have to make arrangements. They have to get paperwork. They have to get the vet to check out all the animals. So there, there's a bunch of things that needs to be done behind the scenes before we even pick them up. Uh, so the animals that you see, and it's it's unfortunate, they're the death row animals. There's We don't transport single animals. We always take a larger load. We're generally taking, if it's dogs, I would say on average 10. 10. If it's cats or puppies, we could take as many as 30 and more or more. So we're, we're taking a larger load. It takes time to, to get that prepared. So um, we generally shy away from the stuff that we, we get every day. We get emails like, you know, this animal is going to be put, put to sleep within 24 hours. I mean, we're not mobilizing and flying, you know, halfway across the country for one animal. Um, that's more of the pilot and pause stuff, actually. It's perfect for that. But um, we need to fill every inch of that cabin because it's expensive to fly. And we need to do right by our donors and keep the cost per animal down as much as possible. Um, you know, our, our operating costs. Uh, so want to make sure that we 
out. Um, so yeah, it's about a week, week lead time. We, we have three trips this week, uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, and Thursday. And those plans have been in making um, over a week ago, maybe two weeks. What's been your favorite trip? What's like one that stands out? Was it your first one? Was it a recent one? Or is there any, any story in particular where just like you have a very vivid, good memory about it? Certainly the first one we did with the 10-ditch puppies because that's what gave me the idea to start the organization. So that's, I have very fond memories about that. And the president of our board, who's a pilot himself, um, he was with me on that trip. And uh, other trips that were very memorable, uh, the largest dog we ever rescued, I think it was an Alaskan Malumet, uh, Malumet, a 150-pound dog. Um, so that was that was extremely memorable. And then the giant game of Tetris that ensues, um, we did a rescue just before the end of the year. Um, and I, I saw the animals and everybody was in disbelief that we were able to fit all the crates. So I'm constantly experimenting with different crates. We're tr- constantly trying to see what we can take out of the cabin that buys us a few inches. So it, it literally, it's a real live game of Tetris, um, which is uh, it's rewarding and, and challenging at the same time. But, How do you uh, do? You strap them down. Do you get their weights? Do you reweigh them? Like, what do you, you what do you do for uh, to make sure nothing moves? Uh, to make sure you're in limits with the plane. Yeah. So the weight situate the weight uh, usually doesn't become an issue because um, generally we're transporting a- uh, animals that don't weigh more than sixty pounds. Right. Occasionally, so it's more of a volume thing than a weight thing. Usually. It's a volume thing. Yeah. It's a crate size. Honestly, the crates that the crates that they have are way too big because all the animals just lay down and go to sleep. So we are constantly trying to figure out like how we can stack crates. Stacking crates only happens basically in the middle. Uh, it's club seating. So there's four seats in the back. It happens in the middle. That's where we can stack four crates. Uh, everything else is just one layer and whatever we can fit on top. Um, so, oh, going back to the most memorable trips, we get involved in some da- endangered species and we've done uh, red wolves and uh, Mexican gray wolves. So those, those trips are very memorable because you're you're actually having an impact on the proliferation of that species. Like red wolves are the most endangered canine in the whole world. And where would dogs be without the, the wolves, right? So um, when we transport one of those wolves, um, we're actually pro- helping that species survive. Um, they're at the brink of extinction. There's only 10 known red wolves, uh, collared red wolves in the world. Um, so one of the wolves that we transport had like 10 pups and increased the worldwide population by like over a hundred percent, you know, it's just amazing to, to do that kind of work and know that. Yeah. So that's very memorable. A, do you have like a success rate? Like, uh, for your missions, do you see like 90% of all these dogs get saved or they get adopted? Do you have any kind of numbers of that at all? Well, so it's over 90% because the, any animal that we transport, the receiving shelter or foster organization, they can't euthanize. So if any animal happens to perish and it does happen once in a while, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't due to our efforts and transport. We've knock on wood and not had any die in flight for any reason, but they may have some, you know, virus or disease that it just, they were not able to treat it. So unfortunately it either died or had to be put down, but it, our, our success rate, I would imagine is over 90%. I think I would have the hardest time of not wanting to adopt every dog. You know, like you, you see all these 10 dogs, they look really sad or, or they're just so nervous and you just want to comfort them. And you're like, well, 
they need to be saved. We can take them. It's like, <laughs> why not? Let's take another one. Do you find yourself struggling with that? Or is that kind of an early thing and now it's kind of, uh, you understand it's more of like a mission-based job and you're just getting them to their next step? Yeah, it's that. Um, don't get me wrong. I would love to adopt more animals, but we live in a 1500 square foot apartment in Brooklyn with a, I have four boys, five and under and a hundred pound dog already. So there's just no room to put any animals here. Uh, we have a larger piece of property in uh, the Hudson Valley, New York, near Alts. Um, I have always thought about maybe starting like a temporary shelter or a waypoint for animals that we can house them, but everybody has talked me out of it because that's the side of the industry that's very cost intensive, labor intensive, and uh, sticking to the transport is is enough. You know, I know there there are so many great shelters and facilities out there um, that we don't need to start another one. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if you're doing one thing great, it's like kind of stick with that and just be great at that. You know, once you dilute yourself and you bring on more, it's harder to be great at both things. And especially the other one takes more time away. Maybe uh, your actual transportation hinders a little bit and that's kind of where your bread and butter is and what it really brings you joy. Yeah. And that's one of the things I learned, Justin, being an entrepreneur is you you have to focus. You have, if you're doing something well, just stick to that and do it the best you can. Don't start going off on all these tangents because it's going to dilute your mission and it's become a distraction. Um, and that's one thing I've learned after 40 somewhat years of running different businesses. And I'm actually winding down some of these other businesses and, and projects that I have so I can focus on Pilots to Rescue and I can expand on it. And now I'm finally taking it seriously for all those times. So Yeah, I love it. That's great. Uh, anyone else that ever wants to do anything entrepreneurial in aviation or even just, let's just backtrack and just say someone later in life and I 34 is not that late. There's people that are 60, 70, maybe not 70, but 60 that still want to go fly and get their private pilot license or do just enjoy aviation. What would you recommend to someone that has a full-time job that's busy, that has family, that has kids, that getting in aviation? Like, what would you tell them to actually go do it? I have found that everyone says they regret putting it off every single year once they started it. It's like, man, I wish I would have done this 10 years ago. Do you think that, do you find yourself in that same situation? I don't have any regrets. Of course, I would have loved to start flying earlier, but I can tell you things that I've started really early in my life, I ended up getting burnt down and abandoning it. Um, like a lot of the sports that I played in high school, I could have even played baseball in college. You know, It's just I got burnt out. It wasn't fun for me anymore. So that's the disadvantage of starting too early. There, Everything happens for a reason. There's, there's, you know, Timing is important. Um, the, the tip I would give is set yourself up for success. Like Surround yourself with people that can help alleviate maybe the things that you are having trouble um, figuring out a way that could be taken care of while you're taking these lessons and really focus on getting it done in an expedient manner. Going back earlier to our conversation, it sounds like neither of us necessarily did our, our you know, got our PP, PPL in a time frame that was, you know, uh, efficient. So I, I would say figure out a way that you could fly two to three times a week. And if that means someone taking care of your kids or walking your dog, make sure you have all that stuff in place before you embark on that journey. And you, you can make it happen. You, if it's important enough to you and you're passionate and and share with people why why you want to do it and ask them to help you. Yeah, 100% it's agree. That's great. Great advice. My last question is um, talk a little bit about how a caravan, specifically a caravan and how you how it's going to help you, uh, how it's going to drastically uh, change the your, your program, your business, and why it's worth the $2 million. Yeah. So the, um, the caravan's all about cargo space. I mean, the operating cost actually is not, it's not 
much more than this turbo Saratoga we're flying now. Maybe it's like a hundred to $150 more, but think about the volume that you're taking. So the cost per animal operating cost per animal goes way down. Um, even though you're spending a little bit more per hour, I mean, you could take at least five times the amount of animals, if not more. Um, and to really make a, a transformational shift with this problem we're having with animals, you, you, there's you need to transport a higher volume of animals each flight. So we're we're working with uh, Bissell Pet Foundation, and we're trying to clear out this shelter in Mississippi that's changing ownership. And we had to do it in three flights. We could have done it in one flight with that caravan, and we could have also flown all the way down to Mississippi rather than meeting people. People, um, you know, in North Carolina or whatnot. Obviously, it's not a speed demon, but it's worth taking a trip if you could do it in one fell swoop. Uh, so it's just it's a it's a numbers game. It's an efficiency thing, and it's also really important for disaster response because we could be bringing supplies in as well as bringing animals out, like what happened with Ida. Um, you know, that just devastated the the area in Louisiana. So we could have been bringing supplies in, whether it's fresh water or, you know. Um, Whatever, whatever supplies we can fit in the cabin and then bring animals out, That's you're, you're doing a lot of good. You just can't do that with such a small plane. So it's really important. And the last thing I'll add is um, there are some groups that are chartering aircraft to do this mission. And that's all fine and dandy, but you know that's at extreme cost and maybe not the best use of donors' money. And we provide all these services for free. Obviously, we're Part 91 and we're... Uh, a public benefit aviation organization. So if we can acquire an aircraft like that, it will take the financial burden off of some of these organizations and make it way more efficient and better use their money not to be chartering aircraft. So uh, that's why it's so Arabic. You're ready to go. If I, I can tell you thought about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's absolutely. Awesome. Uh, are you close at all? Do you mind me asking? Is it like a, a realistic uh, soon, do you think? Or is it still a little ways off? I think it's a 23 thing, mainly because of the reserves that you need to keep, especially operating two aircrafts. Um, and there's countless stories of people that didn't budget properly, didn't have a good reserve because stuff goes wrong all the time. So um, although we probably could make it happen this year, it would really tap us out as an organization. So I think it's a 23 thing. Plus, uh, you know, back to what we said earlier, air, used aircraft are just going for silly prices right now. So it would make sense just to let that money um, accumulate work for itself. Um, so absolutely. All right, Michael, those are all the questions I have for you for, for that part of the podcast. Uh, I, I love what you're doing. Uh, it, it's incredible. I mean, I mean, dogs obviously have a soft spot for a lot of people and the idea that you you're going and making a difference in their lives. And maybe some people forget about these dogs, but, uh, you're helping them out. I think that's so cool. And I wish you the best. And I hope you, I hope to see a caravan on your Instagram and in, in your future way sooner than you think it could happen. Maybe another caravan, maybe two and get Cessna involved, you know, <laughs> don't yeah. let you fly a couple of caravans around, but I, I love what you're doing. Um, and now it is time for the rapid fire section. Today's rapid fire section is sponsored by Sirius XM aviation with high resolution coast to coast composite radar and cloud to cloud cloud to ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always available weather products like METARs, echo tops and storm tracks Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead check out aopa.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two-month free trial to try these products out for yourself I'm sure they'll love to sponsor the puppies. So <laughs> they are the proud sponsor of the, this part of the podcast. Um, I, I'm just going to ask you very, very quick questions and you just go ahead and answer them as fast as possible. Sound good? Sounds good. 
All right. What is your favorite airplane ever made? Uh, well, I'd have to say the Cessna Caravan because that's the one we're trying to get. If you could have a corporate jet, what corporate jet would it be? Oh, corporate jets. I don't even know what the latest and greatest is. <laughs> Usually people just say Gulfstream. Oh, okay. <laughs> if oh, you could uh, fill a plane with a 777, would you buy a 777 and figure out a way to operate it? Or if you could fill Abs- it up with dogs? Absolutely. That would be the dream. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, what's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Oh, some, probably some of those um, seaplanes. They're a little funny looking. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Uh, how long it takes and how expensive it could be. Who is the one person you would love to be one of your uh, influencers to come help out? Uh, probably John Travolta or Harrison Ford. What's your favorite thing about aviation? How it makes you a better person in every other aspect of your life. Hardest flight you've ever flown? Uh, would have to be an instrument approach I did during a storm. And that one, I think, was pretty much down to minimums. Favorite flight you've ever had? Um, severe, clear flights, uh, full with as many animals. I, I didn't think they would ever fit. It was that giant game of Tetris I mentioned. What's your favorite airport you get to land at? Uh, always my home airport coming back. because great satisfaction of a mission being complete. What about your least favorite airport? Um, Peterborough. <laughs> fun uh that's funny uh would you rather fly ifr or vfr and i think it'd be vfr but uh, which one um i like the i like ifr for the the rules and stuff challenge yeah Mm -hmm. um what is your favorite air so let's say you are flying down for a mission maybe you do a fuel stop in between or maybe you go to this mission and you need food what kind of food are you always looking for you you go to chick-fil-a do you go to uh, a local joint like what are you looking for when you take that that beautiful crew car to get some food uh, well, that hardly that never happens when we do these missions because we don't have the time. We're always coming packing packing with food. Yeah. But the, the rare chances that I get to go out and and go to a restaurant, it's always going to be something by the water whenever possible if the weather cooperates. So, like Mont- flying to Montauk, there's a seafood restaurant within walking distance. I forget the name of it, but that's one of my favorites. What's the farthest you've flown to go pick up an animal? Uh, south of uh, Atlanta, Falcon Field with Mindy Lindheim. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the cities? Uh, I would say cities. What's your favorite airline? Uh, Delta. Would you rather have, so you're taking off in your your plane. Would you rather have as many short flights as possible? Like maybe you got to pick up like, you have six different pickups for animals or would you rather have long flights? Yeah, I'd rather have the long flights. That's a lot of takeoff and landings and taxi. What's the hardest check ride you've ever taken? Uh, instrument check ride. Biggest regret in your career so far, if you have one. I don't have any regrets. What's the biggest win of your career? Uh, biggest win, I would say, is getting the instrument rating. If you could do it all over again, would you train 141 or 61? Uh, I think that 141 would be more, it would have been more efficient. And... Uh, I would ask this, but I know the answer to it. Piper or Cessna? Actually, that's a good question because you currently fly a Piper and you've had other Piper, but you really want a caravan. So when it all comes down to it, which one? Uh, take out the caravan. Uh, just what airplane would you rather have, a Piper or Cessna? Well, I mostly have flown Pipers, but I've flown Cessna for the training. I'll, I'll go with Piper just because I've owned two now. But if Cessna is listening to this, then you'll go Cessna, <laughs> right? Yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> well, there are pros and cons of each, that's for there sure. Are, yeah, there, there are. Well, those are all the rapid fire questions, Michael. Thank you so much. And like I said, thanks for everything you do. Uh, if I can help out in any way, 
uh, go ahead right now and just drop all all your links, all your socials, whatever. If one even wants to reach out to you again, just so you have another way to, to reach out to you and get in touch. Yeah. So our website is pilotstorescue.org, all spelled out, pilots, plural, T-O-T-H-E, rescue.org. And our handles on Instagram and Facebook are at pilots to rescue, also all spelled out. Perfect. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. Avi Nation, that is a wrap of episode 209. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, check out Pilots to the Rescue. It's an amazing organization. Check out Pilots Coffee, the best coffee in the game, whole beans and ground coffee. It's going to change your mind on coffee if you don't like it. It's the best. So try that out. Share it with a friend. Like I said in all the other ones, steal your friend's phone, force them to subscribe and become a pilot and listen to this podcast so you can have something in common. Hope everyone's having a great day. And as always, happy flying.